entire Bible uh, by people who call themselves Christians and people who wouldn't call themselves Christians. Just about everybody knows this, and, and everybody agrees with it, more or less. But as we'll see, it's actually one of the more challenging commands in the Bible, one of the more challenging texts that we'll see. But I want to start by looking back a little bit to recap the past three weeks. Because when we opened this series in the first week of Leviticus, we did an overview of the book. And we saw how in Leviticus, God is calling a community into his presence. He's calling a community to his presence. A group of recently and miraculously freed slaves, the Israelites, is called from slavery and death in Egypt and to a community that lives in the presence of God. And I noted three dynamics to this that are explored in Leviticus. There are three things that God has called the Israelites to as he speaks to them through Moses at at Mount Sinai. And the first one was God calling these people to his presence to be free from sin. And this, this addressed the question, how can a sinful people, a people who have done wrong in God's sight, How can a sinful people dwell with a holy and righteous God? And the answer was that through this sacrificial system set up in Leviticus, God judged their sin without judging them. Animals would die or be cast out of God's presence instead of them. In the same way this works for us today as Christians, Jesus died. He suffered the rejection and punishment that we deserve instead of us. And last week, Pastor Sean talked about how God called these people to holiness. Holiness being a distinctiveness. They're set apart. They're other. They're different from the nations around them. As God's people now, they're not to be like everybody else anymore. They're God's people. They're to be holy because their God is holy. And this is their response to their salvation, to their freedom. They respond by being God's people, by being like God, by being holy. And in the same way today, our response to the salvation we've been given is to live a holy life that points to God. And finally, in our message in this series, we're going to look at today is we're going to know how God called these people to community. God calls a community into his presence in Leviticus. And in this case, a very large group of people, hundreds of thousands of people, are called to live with one another in the presence of God. So how in the world is this supposed to happen? How are these people supposed to live among one another? How do they act? What are the rules? Well, our our text today is going to give some important insight into God's heart for community and how we live among each other. So please turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19, and I'm going to read just a couple of verses for the sake of time, and I'll try and fill in the context as we move along. But let's start in Leviticus 19. We'll read the first two verses, then verse 18, and then we'll jump down to 33 and 34. So listen carefully with me to what God's Word says. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I... The Lord your God am holy. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor 
as yourself. I am the Lord. And then in verse 33, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So before we go any deeper, let me try and set up the context a little bit here in this chapter. Leviticus 19, in your Bible, it might actually have the, a, a chapter heading that says various laws, which Moses didn't write that, but it's, you know, the translators put that in there to kind of help us along, various laws. And it's actually a fitting title. If you read the whole chapter, it almost reads like a, a list of what often seem to be unrelated laws. In the first half of the chapter, we really get a, a recapitulation of the Ten Commandments. They're, they're repeated and expounded upon. But there's also laws in this chapter about worship, about farming, about eating. But overwhelmingly, as you look at these as a whole, this chapter deals with how people treat and relate to each other. It's about community. And this command, love your neighbor as yourself, is essentially stated twice, first in verse 18, where we read it the first time, and then at the end of the chapter, 33 and 34. And at the end of the chapter, the command is, is expanded upon. It's, it, it's, it, it's, it's noted that it applies to everybody, even the foreigners among you. Foreigners and native-born are to be treated the same, the text says. They are to be loved as you love yourself. Now, it is hard for me to overstate how just dramatically and jaw-droppingly countercultural that was at that time. Even today, in America, that is a countercultural thought to treat others the same way you treat yourself, even if they, they weren't born here, even if they're not from here. We're still dealing with those kinds of tensions in our society, are we not? I mean, even, even in Waltham, right, when you move to Waltham, when I move to Waltham, there's this cadre of people who've been there all their lives, and we're foreigners just coming in. We're from a different town, right? And so there's this sense of you don't really belong here, right? You've got to get accepted. So this is radically countercultural, especially in Moses' time. And this command, love your neighbor as yourself, I would argue has few peers in the Bible in terms of its importance. I mean, how big of a deal is this verse? Jesus himself thinks that this command is a big deal. When he is asked how to inherit eternal life, by the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, 19. How does he respond? He lists some of the Ten Commandments, and he ends with, and love your neighbor as yourself. When an expert in the law asks Jesus how to inherit eternal life in Luke 10, how does he respond? He asks the expert in the law, well, what do you think? And he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, that's right. You got it. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment what does he say in Matthew 22? Number one, love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, which he says is like it, is to love your neighbor as yourself. Same thing repeated in Mark 12. So that should about do it, right? I mean, if Jesus thinks this commandment is in the top two, that pretty much says it all. But there's more. What about the Apostle Paul? the expert in the law, who very likely 
knew the law backwards and forwards and then forwards and backwards again several times. What does he say? The Apostle Paul says that this commandment is the fulfillment of the law. In two of his letters, in Romans 13 and in Galatians 5, Paul says that love your neighbor as yourself is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, all these other commandments that we're talking about all point to this one. They could all fall under this umbrella. These commandments are made complete, they're made perfect, they're summarized by this one. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle James, the brother of Jesus, calls this commandment the royal law in Scripture. The royal law in Scripture. John Calvin was a great 16th century pastor and theologian, and he said of this, of, of the command, he said this, he said, what every man's mind ought to be towards his neighbor could not be better expressed in many pages than in this one sentence. This commandment is about as big a deal as you get. But what does it mean? Right? I mean what, is, what does it really mean? As we already alluded to, neighbor here is actually a very broad term, right? I mean, the text, it, it's clear it applies to native-born Israelites and to foreigners. In other words, you're to love anybody around you the same way you love yourself. And famously, Jesus expands on this command in Luke 10 with the parable of the Good Samaritan that many of us are probably familiar with. And when he does, it's very clear that neighbor means anybody. Neighbor means anybody, even people you don't know, and even among races that might typically be at odds with each other. Anyone you come into contact is somebody you are to love as you love yourself. So the text says to love everybody you encounter or might encounter as you love yourself. So that's simple enough. But the tougher part, the tough part of this command is that word love. What, does, what, what do we mean by the word love? That's such a, such a broad term, and we use it so loosely these days. What does the text mean by that? It can be a blurry line, right? I mean, I could say that, you know, I love Doritos. and You know, I love to read. I love to play the drums. It's just saying I really like something, right? There's an intensity to it. This thing, Doritos, the original kind, just in case you're wondering, is, it, it's very pleasing to me. It brings, it, it brings me great pleasure, right? This is a, a consumer's kind of love, right? We, we consume of something or someone in such a way that it pleases us very much, and we're very fond of it because of the way it pleases us. It's an intensity or fondness for something that pleases us. But love can also denote a feeling that we have. It can be an emotion. We say that we fall in love with somebody. And my friend says something nice to me, and I feel loved. I feel good. You know, when I looked into my wife's eyes, excuse me, when I looked into my wife's eyes and I proposed to her, I felt tremendous love for her. <clears throat> this is an emotional love. And although it's very powerful, it's very good, it's a feeling. It's a feeling. And it comes and goes like all other feelings, like anger or disgust or anything like that. And we have limited control over it. It's much more in step with our, our circumstances than it has anything to do with our will or our volition. 
But we can also talk about love in a deeper way. And this is the way I want us to think about love as we look at our text and as we talk about it today. This is the love that I mean when I say I love my wife and my kids. Or supremely what we mean when we say the Lord loves us. Jesus loves you. And here's how I would define it. Love in the scriptures and in our text today, it is a commitment to give of yourself to others for their good. It is a commitment to give of yourself to others for their good. It is a commitment. It does not ebb and flow with your emotions or your circumstances. We are devoted and bound to it no matter how we might feel. It's like a resolution. And it's sacrificial. We give of ourselves, even to our own peril or discomfort or inconvenience. It doesn't matter what we get back. And if you ever want to judge the depth of your love for something, just ask yourself how much you would sacrifice for it. The deeper the sacrifice, the deeper the love. And it's other-focused. We give to others. Our benefit is not in view, and it's for the good of the other. Our self-giving isn't aimed, it's, it, it is aimed at what's best for them. It's about their flourishing, their joy, their healing, their happiness, their survival, whatever it might be. C.S. Lewis kind of stated this in this way. He said, love is not an affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. He's saying the same thing. It is a commitment to give of yourself to others for their good. This is the kind of love our text is talking about. I mean, if you look at some of the other commands in, the, in chapter 19 of Leviticus, that's what they're really about. If you look at verse 11, don't lie, don't steal, don't deceive one another. I mean, positively, what these commands are saying is be truthful, be honest, respect others' property. Verse 14, don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. In other words, watch out for those who are disadvantaged. Don't take advantage of them just because you can. Verse 16, don't slander. Don't endanger your neighbor's life. In other words, speak well of others or don't say anything at all. Watch out for the people around you so they don't get hurt. Even verse 18 that we read, it starts off by saying, don't take revenge or hold a grudge against your neighbor. Verse 32, show respect for the elderly. These are all things you do that can cost you something. It's a giving of yourself for another's good, right? It's purpose towards an other, towards their good. But even more clearly, if we go back, go back to that parable of the Good Samaritan again that Jesus talks about in Luke 10, and you see how Jesus interprets this command to love your neighbor as yourself. How does he interpret love in this verse? So remember the story, right? A man is, is, is beaten and robbed, and he's left for dead at the side of the road. And two people of high position walk by him and, and leave him alone. But another man, the Samaritan, walks by, and what does he do? The text says he pities him. He bandages his wounds. He puts him on his own donkey, which means that he now has to walk or carry his stuff, and he takes him to an inn and cares for him. Then he leaves the innkeeper money to look after him until he returns. 
Note, until he returns, he's going to come back to check up on him. What's the Samaritan doing? He's loving him. He's giving of himself. He's given his time, his energy, his money for the good and thriving of this man. And he's committed to it. He's not just throwing money at him and walking away. He's making sure he's cared for. He's coming back to check on him. This is loving your neighbor. Supremely, though, we see this kind of love in the love that God has for us. Is God committed to giving of himself for the good of others? God is the supreme example of one who's committed to giving of himself for the benefit of others. And we don't need to look any further than the cross to see this. God gives up his very self, his son, to be killed on the cross for our sake. Jesus' death means our thriving, our life, our good. Romans 5.8 says it really clearly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. There is no greater example of a commitment to give of oneself for the good of others than what we see in Jesus on the cross. So what does our command mean? What's the, the cardinal rule for living in community? The fulfillment of the law. Well, in Leviticus 19, God says he wants us to commit to giving of ourselves for the good of everybody around us, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That's the kind of community we've been called to. But I want to ask why. I mean, why, why the community part, right? Why has God called these people to community? And why, even in this church, why do we, we spend so much time and effort around this community stuff? There's life groups, and there's this service, and we're always talking about community and being with each other and loving each other. I mean, what's that all about, right? Why, why does this text make sense? Why do people within and without the church more or less agree to it? Why is it non-controversial to love your neighbor as yourself? It just intuitively kind of makes sense. Well, yeah, of course. Why has God called us to this kind of community? So, we might note first that God created us to be a community. He created us to be a community. Human beings are irreducibly social people and social animals. I don't even need the Bible to tell me that. Any anthropologist can tell me that. And I don't even need an anthropologist to tell me that because I just know it's obvious, right? Everybody here knows it. It's, it's a fundamental part of the human condition. We're social creatures. Even introverts like me, who prefer to spend 90% of their time in a cave somewhere, right? I need people. I'm a social person. What's the first thing in the Bible that's not good? In Genesis 2, it's man being alone. That's the first thing that's not good. So Adam is given Eve, they procreate, and they make families and little communities and ultimately bigger communities. What's one of the first things that's fractured when sin enters the world and starts to pervert and distort God's good creation? What happens to Adam and Eve? Their relationship with each other is damaged. Community is damaged. They blame one another for their sin. They feel shame at their nakedness. We need community. And not just any community, but a community marked by harmony and love, loving one another. A community where we're all committed 
the giving of ourselves for others, for the good of others. That is the kind of community that really sings, where everybody prospers. If you think about that, just, just take five seconds. We'll only take five because I can't deal with the silence, but just five. And just think about it. What, what would the world be like if everybody was just absolutely sold out, devoted, and committed to loving their neighbors as themselves? Like, would there be any laws? Would we need any regulation? Would we need speed limits or weapons or anything at all? And we know what it looks like when people aren't faithful this to this command, right? We, we get what we have today. So why are human beings created this way? Why did God create us for community? What makes us social creatures who are created for community? What's well, right in Genesis, right in the, the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1.27. It says, God creates male and female. God creates people in his own image. We are created in the image of God. So we are created to reflect him, to point to him, to honor him, to be like God. We're created in his image. And God is a loving community. God is a loving community. Right? As Christians, we believe that there is one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each person unique and distinct, yet fully God. God is a community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have loved one another for all eternity, well before we were created. So, of course, if we're created in his image, we too were meant to live in loving community. God is a loving community. And God's image, his glory, his character, it's best expressed through a loving community. His purposes, his love, his goodness, God's character, God's glory is best expressed through a loving community. That is why the Israelites are called to loving community. That is why we are called to community today. God's glory is best expressed through a loving community. How else would we reflect God's character and his image? God who is himself a loving community, if we aren't a loving community as well. I mean, even more practically, if you think about it, how else do you reflect God's character unless other people are around? How can you be loving with nobody to love? How can you be forgiving with nobody to forgive? How can you be fair to others if there's no one to be fair to? How do you respect others if there's no one to respect? A few months ago, I preached on Galatians 5, the famous, the fruit of the Spirit, found at the end of the book of, of Galatians. And the fruit of the Spirit are... Our love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Right? And I noted that you can't exhibit any of these characteristics on a deserted island. Right? You need people around you. You need community. Because God's glory, the fruit of the Spirit, which is like the character of God, that's best expressed through a loving community. And what is at the heart of God's character but love? A commitment to give of himself for the benefit of others. Love requires community. You can't be loving without anybody else to love. 
take one step further and consider the diversity in community. How could finite human beings express all the rich depth and perfection and goodness of God? How could one person do that? I mean, I'm personally, I'm not the world's most pastoral person. Now, those of you who know me, you kind of know that. I'm socially a little awkward. I have trouble remembering names. I love people, but you know, I'm not the most pastoral person in the world, right? But Pastor Sean is, right? I mean, you, you, you spend two minutes in his presence, and if you don't feel loved, it's probably because you're not breathing, <laughs> right? And so together, right, there's more of God reflected in that little mini community than there would be if it was just me or just Sean. I'm not the world's most creative or artistic person, but Josh is. Look at the stage. Come on, right? I, I can't do that. A lot of us can't do that. Put it together, right? The body of Christ, the diversity in our personalities, our gifts, and you highlight different aspects of who God is. You get more of God. Right? On our own, we're just these pieces of a puzzle. And they might be pretty pieces, but you put them together, you start to see a picture of who God is. Right? Why? Because God's glory is best expressed through a loving community. Jesus says so clearly in John 13, 34 through 35, he says this to the disciples. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How will the world know that we are followers of Jesus? By our preaching? By our teaching? Our social activism? Our worship service? Our building? How will they know? if we love one another the same way Jesus loved us. How did Jesus love us? He was committed to giving himself for our good. He loved his neighbors as he loved himself. That's how the world knows that we love God, that we're like God, if we love each other. Because God's glory is best expressed through a loving community. God called the Israelites to community. He's still calling us to community today, even right now, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And like a couple weeks ago, this creates a problem because as much as we might assent to the fact that we ought to love our neighbors, we can't do it because it's hard. Man, it is so hard because love costs it has a personal cost. It can hurt. It's risky. And we're often disinclined to give of ourselves for the good of others. And this is especially true when others are not lovable. Right? Talk to my wife. How has it been loving Brian for 13 years? Like, super easy? Because he's easy to live with? It's hard to love. It's hard to love when we feel like somebody doesn't deserve it. So how do we do that? Well, we do it the same way the Israelites did it. By the grace of God, 
by receiving his love and his favor first. Throughout the scriptures, the Israelites are constantly reminded that they are freed slaves, that they were set free from a place of oppression and death by no power of their own. But by God's initiative and God's power, they were rescued from death. Two weeks ago, when I talked about the sacrificial system, I noted how day in and day out, and supremely, once a year at the Day of Atonement, right, the Israelites see right in front of them a reminder that they don't deserve God's favor or God's presence or God's blessings. They should be punished and cast out of his presence. But instead, an animal takes their place. So they enjoy God's favor while the animal takes on God's punishment. They're constantly reminded of God's grace in their lives. You don't deserve good, but I love you anyway. Even our text today has a reminder of that in it, right? In verse 34, it says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself. Why? For you were foreigners in Egypt. You see that? You guys used to be foreigners yourselves, and you were mistreated for it. How just deeply ironic and arrogant would it be if, if they, now that they're, they're free, and by no power of their own, no good of their own, they mistreat a foreigner. How hypocritical is that? A native-born Egyptian mistreats you for being a foreigner, and you endure that abuse. Yet when you're free and the tables are turned, you do the very same thing. Kurt Mailer was uh, one of the early leaders in the, in the Antioch movement of churches, and he spent some time with us here in Waltham uh, years ago now. And he was a writer, and he wrote something in an update email ages ago that I will never forget. He said, unless the lamb learns to forgive, when he gets the advantage, he becomes the wolf. Right? Unless the lamb learns to forgive, when he gets the advantage, he becomes the wolf. You see, the Israelites have received grace and favor, and they continue to receive grace and favor from God. And it's made clear to them that it wasn't because of their merit. It was by God's grace. It was by his love. It was by his commitment to his people, the covenant he made with his people. And the only logical way to respond to that is to love others the same way that God loved them. And failing to do so indicates that they never really received that love in the first place. Because that kind of love, that undeserved love, it changes you. It changes you. Don't, don't miss that point because that's the, the power behind the command. We can love others well, even those who are unlovable, because we have been loved well, even though we are often unlovable. As, as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we've received the supreme love while we were sinners unlovely, worthy of punishment and being condemned. God loved us by giving us his son. He died so we could live. He freed us, not because of what we've done, but because of what his son did. He loves us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And so we receive this, that, that great truth, a heart of the gospel, and we're free to love others the same way. And this requires that, that constant reminder in your heart of who we are, 
were a group of freed slaves, were rescued by God's grace. And, and we can't give what we haven't received. So as we receive the love of God that we find in Christ, we can give it back to those around us and love our neighbors as ourselves. And in it, God is honored. He's, he's pointed to, he's glorified. Because God's glory is best expressed through a loving community. So if you look at yourself through the lens of the gospel, you can't help but love others too. Sinners, unlovable people, just like you, who need a Savior just as badly as you do. Broken people, just like you, just like me, who are saved from their sin exactly the same way that you are. I heard a prayer once that, that, that summarizes this perfectly. It says, God, help me to forgive others who sin differently than I do. Amen? You can love yourself in your sin, right? Somebody else's. Oh, good gravy. That's just intolerable. We can't stand that. No. Through the gospel, they... they they receive God's favor the same way you do. God's glory is best expressed through a loving community, and we can love others because God loved us. So this, this week, I was really struggling with how to, how to conclude this message. And I, I spent all this time, and I got all these great quotes about community from, from C.S. Lewis and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and all this practical advice, I had a, a page written of like some practical things, like how we can love our neighbors. And I, and I thought about all these, these illustrations I could use, or hymns, or songs, or something I could try to stir us up, right? And, 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 and get us excited about this. But it, in the end, I just choked on it. I, I, I choked on it. Because all, you know, all that stuff is helpful, and, and it really can be helpful, but it's just silly in a way. It's silly to think that we can love our neighbors as ourselves with the same kind of love that God has for us. Because we, we just can't do it. We can't do it by trying harder or thinking more clearly or because we heard some powerful illustration. I mean, it might help, but we'll, we'll fail. I, I can't do it. You can't do it. We can't do it. We can't change our hearts in this way to be so other-focused and to love others the way God does. My preaching can't change your hearts. Nothing can. Only one thing. There's only one way, and I mean that only one way that your heart can change that way, that can change your hearts to live out this command, and that's the gospel of Christ. It's only God's grace only God's grace. We are unlovable, sinful people, all of us, bearing real moral guilt before a holy God. And that God, that God, the author of life, the God of the universe who made all things, loves us, loves you so dearly so far beyond the highest possible, uh, you know, imaginable expression that humankind could muster. So much 
that he gave himself to die the death that we should have died so we could have him and be with him forever. Until that truth rocks you to your core and you are born again, given new life by placing your faith in Christ as your Savior, you are adopted into God's family, made a child of God, this command will elude you. And even if you've received that before, the only way you're going to live it out is by every moment just being saturated with the gospel of Christ. And you'll love others when you realize that God loves you. So the band can come on up. Uh, I'd like to pray for us. That we get hold of that love. Can you just, for a second, can you imagine? Can you even imagine what this church would be like if we got just one sixty-fourth of how much God loves us in our hearts. Do you realize what would happen to this church, to this community, to this world? Nothing would stop us. Nothing would shake us. It would change the whole community. It would set the world on fire if we loved other people that way, if that flowed through us, if God's love flew through us like a lightning rod to the community. It'd be unstoppable. It'd be like the church in Acts. That's what set the world on its ear, right? People getting a hold of that love that God has from them, that new life they have in Christ. So let's pray that over ourselves. And as we respond, let's receive it. Let's bask in it. Let it flow out. Because God's glory is best expressed through a loving community. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your love, that you love us. You have not given us a command that is not backed 100% by your infallible, unquenchable, perfect love for us, Lord God. Thank you, Lord, that we can, we can just apprehend to whatever extent we're able the, the depth of that love you have for us and Lord, we want that. We don't want that to just stay for us. We want that to flow out. It has to flow out of us, Lord God. That's what you made us for, to love others as we love ourselves. And so this morning, Lord, help us receive that. I, I, it's going to look different for everybody here, I'm sure. But Father, Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts? Would you show us? Open our eyes, God. Open our eyes to see it everywhere we go to see the, the truth of the gospel in our lives, the transformed life that we're freed slaves by your grace. And we have nothing apart from you, nothing good apart from you, God. Thank you for loving us so well. Help us to do the same to every single person we come into contact, everybody, people we disagree with, people from different nations, political stripes, whatever it is, God, to love everybody as you love us, as we love ourselves. Let that transform this community here, God, and the communities throughout the world. We love you. We thank you 
loving us so well. In Jesus' name, amen.